If you have a Bible with you this morning, I would like you to take your Bible and turn to the Old Testament book of Jonah. I'll give you a little bit of time to find Jonah in your Bibles. If you need to use the index in the front, that's okay. If you come to Obadiah, turn right. If you come to Micah, turn left. And there is Jonah. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are in a year-long series on what is a disciple of Jesus and considering different aspects of this. And we are currently in kind of a mini-series within the series on a disciple's emotions. In fact, I will be in this for a number of weeks to come because I believe this is such an important subject for us as a church and as individual disciples. God has created us as emotional beings. He wants our emotions to be Christ-exalting and spirit-filled. Nothing is worse, folks. Nothing is worse than lifeless, dead Christianity. Oh, how God wants us to be full of the Holy Spirit and to use our emotions to praise him and to honor him. This morning, we are going to talk about a little different aspect of our emotions, and that is genuine repentance and confession. The power in the Christian life, the power among us when we are regularly practicing confession and repentance. And I want to use Jonah chapter 3 as our text. It's only 10 verses long, so don't panic that we're going through the whole chapter here because it's not very long. But let me read it for you, and I want you to listen very carefully what happens. Let me give you just a little bit of background. Some of you here may not be, be familiar with the book of Jonah, but in Jonah chapter 1, God calls the prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of the greatest empire on earth at that time, the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians were arch enemies of Israel. They were anti-Semitic. They really hated the Jewish people. And God calls Jonah to go to them. And Jonah runs the other way. He's like, no, Lord, can't do that. He gets on a ship for Tarshish and in chapter one, it says that he goes away from the presence of the Lord. Well, God goes after him. He causes a great storm to come up on the ship. The uh, sailors on the ship realize that Jonah is the cause of the storm, so they throw him overboard. Jonah is swallowed by a great fish, and he spends three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. And then in chapter 2, we find that Jonah in the belly of the great fish comes to a time of great repentance in his own life and recommits himself to the Lord. And so we pick it up in chapter 3, Jonah chapter 3, and it reads like this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. 
Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, 40 days, or yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. And he did not do it. Well, our first point this morning is joy and sorrow. As we consider the subject of a disciple's emotions, we must not focus, we must not focus only on joy, but also on sorrow. There is a place in all of our lives for godly sorrow. We all want to experience the joy of the Lord and to celebrate his goodness. That is an incredibly important part of being a disciple. I loved Pat's song this morning. You want a song, you want to know what a song is like that exalts Christ and is filled with good theology, that is it. And, and I just rejoiced in Christ as, as I listened to her sing that song this morning. So that is very important in the Christian life. But there are times when we mourn, when we experience what I would term as godly sorrow. It may be for the sins around us. We may grieve in our hearts and in our souls for the sins of our culture or the sins that we see going on around in the world as we watch the news every night. But my focus this morning is specifically on sorrowing for the sins in our own lives. It is so easy to curse the darkness that is out there without realizing the darkness that is in my own life and the need for sorrow in my own life. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4, in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And if you were to study that verse, I preached on that verse a number of years ago. And it does, it refers to not only the sins in the world, but the sins in me. To realize that when I see what troubles me in the world, I see what troubles me in my own life. Very interesting passage of scripture is Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 2 and 4. If you're not familiar with it, it's very interesting. And this is what Solomon says, verse 2. It is better to go to a house of mourning 
than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. There is something to be learned. There is something that we experience and grow in when we are sorrowful for sin in the world and in our own lives. But here's the crux of this morning. Here is what I would call the big idea of my sermon this morning, and it is this. There are many times in each of our lives when we must express sincere, broken-hearted confession and repentance. There are times when we need to be on our faces before the Lord, confessing and repenting before Him. When we consider not only our actions, but our thoughts and our attitudes and our motives, confession and repentance needs to be a daily discipline in each of our lives. It is. Folks, let's be honest this morning. It is possible for a Christian to think filthy thoughts. It is possible for a Christian to think angry, bitter, resentful, envious thoughts. Sometimes when we do things, we may do the right thing, but do it with the wrong motive because we want to be recognized. We're hoping somebody praises us. Folks, we need to confess those things on a regular basis, on a daily basis, and practice repentance before the Lord. I will say this, and I think this is important this morning. I have found this is often the difference between a Christian who is growing significantly and one who is not. If you are sitting here this morning and you're not growing and you're frustrated with your growth, it is possible that this may be one area. We are so prone, folks. We are so prone, every single one of us, no one exempted this morning, toward griping and complaining and criticizing all the time over something or someone. And I found that those Christians who really grow are those who weep for their own sins. Those who mourn for their own sins and say, God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We think of that story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18 of the tax collector, or the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee, full of pride, full of himself, but the tax collector wouldn't even look up to heaven. He beat his chest, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That needs to be our attitude. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me. The verse that we had put up for the offering time, Proverbs 28, 13, so important. He who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. If you are trying to hide your sins from God, if some of you this morning are trying to live in secret sin, you will not prosper spiritually. You will not. But whoever confesses 
and renounces his or her sins finds mercy. Well, that leads us to our second point, and that is Nineveh's repentance. Jonah is directed by God to go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim a message of judgment. Again, in verses 1 through 3, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh, Notice, I want you to notice, that great city and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And watch again. It says, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. The Bible goes out of its way to say this was a great city, and it was. It was a vast city. It was at this time, and historians believe for a 50-year period of time, Nineveh was the largest city in the world, a city of great culture and arts, very advanced for its time, but a city that was exceedingly wicked. The Assyrians were, if we could use the term, hell-bent on conquering the world. They were conquerors. And they despised many nations, including the nation of Israel. It would take you three days, the Bible says, to walk through the city. Now, when you think of this city, I don't want you to think of modern cities. So if you think of Detroit or Los Angeles or Chicago or New York, when you think of those cities or you go to those cities, what you're struck by is how compact they are. Yes, they're huge but they are a city of high-rise buildings. That is the thing that impresses you when you go into a modern city as how many skyscrapers there are. Not true in the ancient world. A city was spread out. It was vast, and such was true of Nineveh. We don't know exactly how big Nineveh was. We do know in Jonah chapter 4, it says there were 120,000 people who could not tell their left hand from their right, which most Bible teachers believe was a reference to the children there. Historians believe that the total population of Nineveh at this particular time was somewhere between 600,000 and a million. So for an ancient city, this was very significant. It was a vast, magnificent city that housed the capital of the Assyrian Empire, the most powerful empire on earth at this time. Now, in verse 4, this is what we read. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah walks into Nineveh. The more you read this, the more you realize why he was so reluctant the first time. He's going into this major city that hated the Jewish people, and he's saying, In forty days, you're toast. It's over. You're done. You're going to be destroyed. Here is the word of the Lord. Now, I want you to try to get the picture. Here is this obscure Jewish prophet that doesn't know anybody in the city of Nineveh. He comes out of nowhere. Like Elijah out of the desert or John the Baptist out of the wilderness, he just comes walking in to Nineveh. And he gives an announcement of doom that in 40 days they are going to be overthrown and destroyed. This 
greatest city on earth at this time in history. You're done. It's over. Now you would think, you would think that no one in this pagan city would listen to Jonah. Who's this guy think he is? I'm guessing, I'm serious folks, I'm guessing the reason Jonah was so reluctant, and this helps you to understand, maybe have a little compassion for Jonah when he ran away from the Lord. Jonah probably thought that when he went into the city, they may kill him, arrest him, put him in jail. At the very least, they would probably mock at him and laugh at him, or mock him and laugh at him, saying, who does this guy think he is walking into our city and telling us we're going to be destroyed? Think of Acts chapter 17. The great apostle Paul, considered one of the great intellectuals of all time, a phenomenal debater. The apostle Paul goes into the city of Athens, and what do they do? They say, who is this babbler? They debate with him. They argue with him. They take him to the Areopagus and say, okay, Paul, let's listen to you. So I'm sure Jonah was thinking, hey, I'm going to give this message, and then whatever happens, I'm obeying the Lord. But none of those things happened. They didn't kill him. They didn't arrest him. They didn't laugh at him. Folks, don't miss it this morning. One of the most wicked, unbelieving cities on earth experiences one of history's greatest revivals. This is an awesome passage, an awesome chapter. It really is. In verse 5, it says this. This was their reaction. And the people of Nineveh believed God. It doesn't say they just believed in God. They believed what God said. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. They somehow, in the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, I don't understand it all, I really don't. They somehow grasped that the one true God of heaven and earth was speaking to them and that they had better listen. This unbelieving, wicked, pagan city. The proclamation of a fast and putting on sackcloth indicates a spirit of profound and deep repentance. I mean, folks, they were like beside themselves. They believed it was true. They believed that in 40 days they were going to be, excuse me, destroyed. By the grace of God, they believed the threatening message and repented. Now, it gets even better. What happens next is absolutely stunning. The king of Nineveh leads his people in mourning for their sin and turning to God. The king hears about this and he leads the way in confession and repentance. Verses 6 through 9, if you're not familiar with them, really rank as one of the most, is one of the most astounding sections in all of the Bible. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. This is the king. Here's the decree to the city. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. 
Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, the king says. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Wow. I want to be intellectually honest with you this morning. There has been a debate for a couple of centuries now on whether or not the king of Nineveh is a reference to the governor of that one city or is it the king of the entire Assyrian Empire. Critics of the Bible say this was probably a, just a governor, somebody that ruled over just this one city. But we have to remember the critics of the Bible don't believe this story actually happened. Not like it says. They're the same people who don't believe that Jonah was actually swallowed by a great fish. If you're not aware of it, Jonah is one of the most criticized books by secular scholars in all of the Bible. But folks, I want you to understand something. At this time, especially in the Assyrian Empire, it would have been very unusual for a governor of a particular city to be called a king if he wasn't the king of the whole empire. That would have been very unusual at this time. There is precedent, especially among biblical writers, to call the king of an empire also the king of his capital city. For example, when Ahab was the king over the northern kingdom of Israel, he is sometimes referred to as the king of Israel. He is sometimes referred to as the king of Samaria, which was the capital city of the northern empire of Israel in the divided kingdom. But here's why I bring this all up. Number one, thanks to Bible software, I was able to look at 12 different conservative commentaries on this section of scripture. The consensus among conservative scholars is, and I want you to grab a hold of this, this is not simply the king of Nineveh, this is the king of the Assyrian Empire living in his capital city where kings lived. And the reason the critics of the Bible focus on this is because it is so amazing they just can't believe it would happen. I just want you to think about that. This story is so incredible that the critics of the Bible say, I just can't believe it happened this way. But we are the people of Scripture. We are the people who have a high view of the authority of Scripture, who believe in the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. And folks, I believe it happened just like it says it did. And this was the king of the greatest empire on earth at that time. And this is what it says. He got off his throne, which acknowledged the authority of God over him. By getting down from his throne, he got down from his place of authority and acknowledged the authority of God. He takes off his royal robes. That's super important. All the signs, his robes were his signs of power and authority, and he takes for himself the clothing of absolute humiliation. 
He adorns himself in sackcloth and he sits in ashes signaling a posture of repentance. And he issues and publishes. And when the king issued a proclamation, you did what the king said. He issues and publishes a call for repentance so that the people might mourn over their sin. And he hopes. He hopes that the God who had promised the destruction of their city would relent and turn aside from his anger and be merciful to the people. This is what R.C. Sproul says, commenting on this. He says, I don't know of any record in all of history of such a mass action of repentance as is recorded here about the city of Nineveh, a city that takes three days to walk through it. This entire, this entire account in chapter 3 leads to the emotion-filled response of God in verse 10. All of this leads to verse 10. When God saw what they did, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And he did not do it. God, in his sovereignty, chooses to exercise his compassion and mercy in response to the genuine repentance of the people. Now, we believe the whole Bible to be true. And if you believe the whole Bible to be true, you know this, God knows every heart and every mind perfectly. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows exactly what is in your heart right now. If their repentance was not genuine, God would have known it. This is not some fake repentance. This is not some artificial, temporary repentance. This is genuine. This is from the heart. This is from the soul. To such a degree that God responds to their confession and repentance. As you meditate on the scene, it almost takes your breath away. This lonely prophet walks into town, prophesies a message of doom in 40 days, and the greatest city on earth at that time in history has this amazing, incredible revival. Let's say it is what historians believe, 600,000 to a million people. This is incredible. Imagine, can you imagine how the angels in heaven must have reacted? Jesus said that the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. This is the, great, the greatest city on earth. It, it is almost hard for us to take in, but it's true. There was a great revival in Nineveh. Well, that leads us to our third point, obedience and repentance, and I want to bring this all together as we close. I want to make it real in our lives as disciples of Jesus, whose emotions are so important to our Christian life. First, let me say this. Each of us must have an unwavering confidence in the power of the Word of God and in the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. God has things planned 
that we cannot fathom. I've said this before in messages, and we need to think of it from time to time. I want you to think of the person that you know in your life that is the most unlikely to ever be saved. The person you would say, I can't believe he or she would ever come to Christ. She is so far from the Lord. She cares so little about God. I can't believe he or she would ever come to Christ. And I want you to believe that they can come. I want you to believe that God can save them. I don't care how bad they are, how hardened they may seem to be. I want you to believe that by the gospel they can be saved. I want you to believe in the power of the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Jonah just gave the word of God. That's all he did. He didn't preach a long sermon. He just said 40 days and you are going to be destroyed. And they believed it. They believed it. But I want you to also believe this. I want you to believe that God can do great things in your life. I do. That as you study his word, as you trust his Holy Spirit to work in your life, you can do things, go places, and be a person you never really thought you could be. Because God can do it. If he did it in Nineveh, he can do it in your life. He can. Second thought. There is so much to be learned from the attitude of the Ninevites. Let every person here be reminded again, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. There is, folks, there is no substitute for brokenness, humility, and sorrow for sin. As I said earlier in this message, I believe it is the thing that may be holding some of you back from significant growth. Oh, that God would help you to confess your sin to him daily and to repent of that sin and to cry out for his mercy and his forgiveness. Remember, what is true for salvation is also true for sanctification. Sanctification is the growth of a Christian. You are saved at a point in time, but you are sanctified throughout your Christian life. As you repent and confess, God can cause you to experience powerful growth in your life. Let him have his way in your life. Let me say to everyone here, I'll put myself at the top of the list. Let your Christian life be characterized by, let your Christian life be marked by regular confession and repentance. Never forget what God did in Nineveh. He saw their repentance. He saw that they turned from evil and he responded in a mighty way. He will do the very same thing in your life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us to be a people of confession and repentance. Help us in the midst of our rejoicing and celebration to also be sorry for our sins and to long, long for your cleansing in each of our lives. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.